Sammy. And this is the Holistic Heart Podcast, the place for all things therapy and mental health. We know navigating the human experience can be as challenging as it is beautiful. So we wanted to create a space where we can dive deep into self-exploration, normalize the struggle, and hold space for hard topics and conversations. We are so excited to have you join us on this journey. Welcome to the Holistic Heart Podcast. I'm Kristen and I'm here with Sammy. Hi. And also today we're here with Claire, who is one of our uh, clinicians here at the Holistic Heart. She's been with the team um, for a little over a year, almost two. It's two years. Almost two, yeah. It's going by so fast. And then also I feel like you've been here forever. Like I feel like you're just like part... (laughs) part of the fabric. So it's like short and long at the same time. But Claire is a wonderful clinician here at Holistic Heart and she has a background in infant mental health and works a lot with attachment theory and relationship. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Claire, but I, you know, like how things like your own pa- experience being parented impacts your parenting style. And so a lot of relationship dynamics. Um, and so she's here today to talk to us about attachment and attachment styles. And, but first, Claire, do you want to just give us a little bit of background on you and why you know about this, what you know about um, for our listeners who maybe don't have the privilege of knowing you yet? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm so happy to be here. This is very exciting because I love talking about attachment. I love talking about parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so my background in infant mental health, a lot of people sometimes like get a little confused as to what that is. Are you doing, you know, therapy with babies? And the answer is kind of, um, but infant mental health is really focused on the attachment relationship between the parent and the baby or the caregiver and the baby. So we focus a lot on the quality of that relationship and helping to build, um, secure attachment, which we'll talk about. And it's really an exploration of exactly what you were saying as the process of being parented and what was that like? And, the reflection of how do you then want to pivot and become a parent or become the parent that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, a lot of my work has been with um, people who are pregnant or parenting kids up to age six. And right now I'm really focused more on um, working with people who are pregnant and in the infant stage. So mm-hmm. that's been really fun to do here at Holistic Hearts. That sounds awesome. So it's like really, I hear you talking about in terms of the attachments, like starting from the very beginning, but also working with the parent as well, which is such a symbiotic kind of experience and such an important element there. And I'm sure we'll delve much more into it if you listeners are not familiar with what attachment theory is. Yeah. And it's so fun to have. And I just love that uh, you're here talking to us about this, Claire, because like as you're talking about it, and I know that uh, if you're listening, you can't see this. So I want to tell you, like, Claire, you just light up when you're like starting yeah. to talk about it. And it's so fun to talk <laughs> to people about things that light them up like that and that are so exciting. So it comes through with what you're saying already. Um, so I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, it really, um, I think attachment theory is a really good base for a lot of um, a lot of therapy. Relationships are so important and the way that they get impacted is uh, influenced by our original attachment styles. So 
I find it a really useful um, theory to like start with and to work off of and pretty accessible, I think as well, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I guess, um, should I start by maybe talking a little bit about that? Yeah, let's hear it. Let's yeah. hear a little bit, maybe like what attachment theory is and yeah, let's start there. Sure. So um, started in 1940s after World War II, a guy named John Bowlby. He was the one who uh, first developed attachment theory, and then it kind of got expanded after that. Mm. But um, his basic premise was realizing that that initial attachment quality between a, a, well, he was speaking specifically about mothers, but we'll say parent here, mm-hmm. uh, parent and infant um, is vitally important to how that child develops and um, can have a lot of consequences as well, like in later life. He started his work um, working with homeless children after World War II. I feel like there's like really interesting um, side note here that I find terrifying and also fascinating Mm -hmm. is that during the war, um, the British were recruiting orphans Mm -hmm. and um, men who had little attachments in their early life Mm -hmm. to be in the secret service because they knew that they could send them across enemy lines Mm -hmm. or send them in to be spies or do some of the more cold-blooded violent things that needed to be done in the war and so they had an already like an understanding that that attachment was was important and the lack of it was also significant Mm -hmm. um so pretty horrific to hear but also um indicative of kind of like that maybe intuitive sense that we know of Mm -hmm. why it's important to have quality parenting um yeah but anyway, so he developed this um, concept and it, what came of it was basically um, the quality of the attachment, whether it's secure or insecure. And that's kind of how we talk about attachment styles is in that basis. Um, and secure attachment parenting is um, a parent who is attuned to their baby's needs, is meeting their emotional needs, is able to provide safe and predictable and consistent parenting. Whereas um, insecure attachment was more or less the opposite of things were not as consistent or as um, predictable or that infant had to work harder to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. So then um, Mary Ainsworth came along and she kind of classified some of that insecure attachment a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So she subdivided into two different categories. And this is, um, this is I feel like, what a lot of people get wrong about attachment is they, they call the two categories anxious attachment and avoidant attachment. Um, but truthfully, both of the insecure attachment styles are anxious. Mm-hmm. It's well, anxious and ambivalent was the original term for it. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's important. I feel like I've always heard it um, as anxious or avoidant as well. Tell yeah, me. that... Um, tell more (laughs) yeah uh so the way that mary ainsworth did her studies she did this thing called the strange situation where she put um babies in a room with a mom and then there's like there's a there's a whole procedure that goes into feeling safe and secure with mom introducing a stranger removing mom and then bringing or moving the stranger and then bringing mom back in Mm -hmm. and all of that um depending on the baby's reactions is how the um, infants got classified into what type of attachment that they had. Mm -hmm. And so for the avoidant babies, they were um, 
they acted as though they didn't really notice or they didn't have much concern when mom left the room. When mom re-entered, there wasn't a big reunion. It was play as normal. Mm -hmm. And then for the ambivalent babies, they were highly reactive and highly emotional when mom left. And then upon the reunion, they were also highly reactive and highly emotional and very difficult to soothe. Mm -hmm. um, and is so that reunion the, didn't feel as good. The ambivalent is like that or the anxious is like mm -hmm. The ambivalent. Oh, sorry. Did I misspeak? No, I wanted to make sure because you, you said avoidant and ambivalent so far. Is there an anxious one also or anxious doesn't exist? Well, so anxious, I think of like both of the insecure attachment styles are anxious. Okay. So what they actually found is with the um, avoidant babies, the biological markers during that time when the parent was gone and upon that reunion, they were higher than the ambivalent babies, mm -hmm. meaning they had like higher blood, um, blood rate, blood pressure, that sort of thing, showing that they were actually highly anxious. They were just suppressing their need for comfort. Fascinating. So is that where we sometimes hear the terms like anxious ambivalent or anxious avoidant? Is it like people trying to like put those together that like these are both subsets of anxious overall? Is that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it's almost like there's subsets of insecure and anxious, like there's anxious tendencies for both of these. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think um, the other important thing to note is all three of these, like the avoidant, ambivalent, and secure, they're all organized patterns of getting needs met. Yeah. And then somebody else came along later. Um, I think it was Mary Main, and she discovered there was actually a fourth attachment style called disorganized. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a very small percent of the population. I think it's only like 5% of people have a disorganized attachment style. Um, and these are usually babies who were raised in extremely chaotic or frightening environments. Mm -hmm. So it was like severe abuse or neglect, or um, if the parent's mental health was such that they had a huge fear of parenting and reacted to the child in that way, they had no organized way of getting their needs met. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a baby might be scared and start going towards a parent to seek comfort and then stop halfway and then kind of freeze and not know what to do. Um, or kind of very slowly approach um, and feel fearful or anxious of like how the parent might respond, but had no, no organized method of responding. Wow. So what then, I guess, um, and I don't wanna take you off track if you have a thought of where to go with this, but I'm wondering like, what does that then look like in adults? Yeah. Um, so more research came along <laughs> and um, the adult attachment interview was developed and they basically found that there were um, also adult attachment styles that more or less corresponded to the children's attachment styles. Mm -hmm. And so with adults, you have preoccupied um, and basically the adult attachment interview was a way of eliciting responses from adults about their early childhood experiences and memories and um, the adult attachment styles is kind of based on their responses around how coherent their memories were, how realistic they were, how kind of put in perspective, um, how affect, like what their affect was as they were talking about it. Um, so you have preoccupied adults who were um, focused on those childhood hurts and pains. Maybe they were having difficulty resolving them. Um, they come across with a lot of anger, a lot of hurt. Um, and 
like the perspective is is skewed on that and then um opposite is the dismissive parents who were found to be really minimizing they had pretty low affect about their childhood experiences um uh, sometimes they kind of talked about their parents in a really idealistic way of you know they were all good or that sort of thing um and so they were dismissive of their own experiences and you can see that in their affect as well mm. um and then you have the oh what is it it's autonomous secure for the adult mm. who is in a secure attachment relationship as a child but basically they have like a realistic exploration of their own childhood it's in perspective they're able to talk about it with appropriate affect and um it matches their experiences more or less and um yeah so those are they're not always like an exact one-to-one -one match but they correlate pretty pretty heavily with each other sure. and so in terms of um I guess just to clarify when you're when you identify or um, kind of like fit the mold of a particular attachment style as an adult, that still comes up as like ambivalent or secure attachment or things like that? Or is that something more just for um, that is coming up for children and then our infants and then it's coming into these other styles into adulthood? So yeah, attachment does stay relatively stable across the lifetime. Um, but that's not to say that if you are a certain attachment style that you can't work towards becoming secure. Okay. And yeah. so that's something that we call like earned security. And that can come across in like so many different ways. Um, therapy is a great way to gain earned security. Um, hopefully you're engaging with a therapist who's providing those like stable, consistent, emotionally responsive, emotionally um, attuned responses to you. Mm -hmm. And that's one way to, um, basically, you know, learn about relationships, learn how to be in relationships. I think also um, changes in environment, changes in caregiving across childhood. Um, attachment usually is like formed around one, um, but there are so many different ways in which a person can learn about um, secure relationships across the lifetime. It could be teachers or coaches or um, extended family or um, parents who come in, like there's so many, there's so many opportunities to have that earned security that if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh my goodness, like that definitely describes my childhood or like, I'm definitely in this, you know, avoidant or ambivalent, um, attachment style. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't have a secure relationship, obviously. Like we can, we can all work towards that. Sure. And I think that relationship is definitely something that I'm wanting to ask you about when it comes to attachment styles. But before I do that, I just want to maybe um, touch on if it feels like, like it can be done <laughs> briefly, but I'm thinking you have given Claire such uh, some things that are honestly genuinely language that's new to me even like, and, and so I think it's super valuable for us, for our listeners to hear um, what the research said and how the terms were used. And I also want to maybe attempt to bridge because I think attachment style is getting more um, culturally known and popular. And I think the words that are being used in that sphere are a little bit different than the words that you are using here. And so I just want to bring those words in and see how they may or may not overlap and whether um, 
like so I think when we're like I'm thinking of the book attached um mm. that's really popular right now um that book talks about avoidant secure and anxious attachment style I think that's the most common language that I've heard is like there's the those sort of two poles of anxious avoidant and then secure um and so I'm wondering if you could speak to that language that's sort of been arising. Maybe that's more recent language. If you've heard that, if if it correlates to the things that you've shared already, or if it's uh, not totally accurate from your perspective. Yeah, to be honest, I read uh, the book Attached and I really enjoyed it. I thought it had a lot of really good practical examples of what this looks like in relationships. Yeah. Um, from... From my perspective, I think that um, calling it anxious instead of ambivalent was maybe just a misstep there um, because the original terms were ambivalent. And I think, mm -hmm. like I said, like, you know, when people say, oh, I'm so anxious in relationships, mm -hmm. this manifests in people who are avoidant quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times it's in this way of like, I have a lot of emotional needs, but I'm going to suppress them. And so I'm going to look hyper independent or like I don't need anything from this relationship mm. um, but there's a lot of anxiety underneath that mm. of like what happens if I do ask for what I need um, will that be responded to or reciprocated mm. um, and so I you know mm -hmm. those do correlate like how they describe anxious in the book is the ambivalent attachment style mm. um, and I love that clarification too I think that's so valuable to know because I think avoidant is often described or talked about as like sort of vacant right like there's like yeah. just like not having that need and what you're describing is that the need is very much there and the anxiety is around that attachment is like that attachment is human a human need we all have it and then you know so that anxiety around the attachment is present it's just presenting very differently I think is such a valuable insight yeah well that yeah. is such a great example of oh sorry <laughs> I was just gonna say it's such a great example of like how important language is. Cause what I'm hearing you say is it's like in that way by like not using ambivalent as the primary term, it's somewhat misleading. And when you're hearing anxious, you may start to kind of like um, attach to um, <laughs> certain traits or certain experiences within that because of even just resonating with that particular attachment style. And I think, um, being able to identify this. And I know when we're having this conversation, I'm like, wow, you're kind of blowing my mind too. Like, this is really fascinating. And I wasn't aware of that either. And I think it's also like seeing how things start and then how they start to manifest and um, evolve and then get more, like you were saying, Kristen, kind of like mainstream is just, it's really interesting. And I think it can, um, it can really help deepen the understanding when you go back and just even briefly, I know you gave a brief history to something that is very expansive, but um, can really just help you get a, a greater depth of um, understanding around that. Yeah, and I think, um, especially with avoidant, I feel like it almost kind of gets a bad rap or that um, mm -hmm. it's misjudged or mischaracterized a lot of the time because it is kind of seen as like, oh, I don't, I don't have needs or I don't, you know, um, I can give everything I want to myself. Like I'm a heavily boundary person or I'm very um, self, like, I don't know what word I'm looking for, but it, you know, especially in American culture, I think it can be very um, 
misleading to think of it as um, like a secure attachment style in it, in and of itself. Um, when we all have attachment needs, we all have need to be in connection in community and relationship. Um, and so thinking about the ways in which our society might, might look upon that behavior as um, something to attain or something to aim for or um, something healthier in relationships. But really it's doing a disservice to yourself for, for not allowing those needs to be expressed in those relationships. Oh yeah, and like you're saying, culturally, American culture, there's such an emphasis on sort of hyper-independence, right? That like um, meeting your own needs and not needing anybody and doing, you know, like that, it, and it negates the very human uh, reality of we're social mm-hmm. beings and we we blossom and we need relationship. Um, and so I love talking about attachment theory because of that, because it's like, this is such a core aspect of, um, and I don't know about both of you, but I'll say relationships are the topic of, I want to say somewhere around like 90% of my Catholic uh, It's like, and in some way we're talking about a person's relationship dynamics because those are what impact our quality of life. Um, so very significantly. And I, I see all the time for myself, for my friends, for my clients that um, challenges in those dynamics can really throw us off kilter, you know, really move our baseline uh, in a way that feels destabilizing sometimes. And so um, learning about our own needs and our own attachment styles and our own conditioning around that can help us navigate those those things that come up in all relationships probably a little bit better. Um, so I'm curious, Claire, if it feels like a, an appropriate time to segue to this, um, I'm wondering what this can look like in relationship or how, how maybe uh, different styles could navigate relationship or any thoughts you have on, on relating from the basis of attachment theory. Yeah, I think, um, I think a big part of this is safety and trust. Mm-hmm. When you think about, I, I wish I had the name to give this person credit, but I was a training that I was in and they described safety for um, a child as who's going to take care of me and what's going to happen next. And it's like that safety, that predictability, that trust. And I think that carries throughout the lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking at relationships as an adult, um, that translates to like, can I trust you? And what can I expect from you? Are you there? Are you reliable? Are you consistent? Um, and I think so many, so many times the ways that that manifests is we have these, we have these learned roles of like how we get our relationships validated as children mm-hmm. and how that looks. And so some of those carry over. And so instead of um, maybe some more direct ways of seeking validation in a relationship or feeling that sense of security or trust. Um, sometimes we have learned patterns of behavior that look to validate our relationship in maladaptive ways or mm. in ways that are um, manipulative in nature. But I don't say that in like malicious. Mm-hmm. It's just um, it's how we've learned to how we've learned to be in relationships. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I think kind of um, looking at some of those things can be really helpful with people 
of like, okay, like, let's start to think about this relationship. You know, what happened here? Um, really sink into like what you were feeling when you decided to either do X, Y, and Z or wait until your partner did X, Y, and Z. I think that's like a pretty common one is you might have a gut, gut impulse of like, oh, you know, I really, um, I really wanted to ask my partner about this thing, but instead I'm going to wait and I'm going to see if they're going to bring it up. <laughs> and that is almost like you looking for a validation that you can trust them because they're going to be the ones to address it first. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're just so common. These things happen all the time. Um, but I think there are ways that if you sink into yourself, you'll realize that like, oh, I'm looking for a form of validation that this person is trustworthy. And that's really what I'm needing from this situation. It's like clarifying what your needs really are too. And as humans, that's what we're doing all the time is trying to meet our needs or meeting our needs in so many varying ways. Um, But so like, particularly, I think in relationships, Kristen, when you said the 90%, I would even go so far as to say a hundred percent of sessions when I'm talking to people. (laughs) And, And like, even if it's not directly coming up, I think of it's going, it's impacting your relationship with yourself too. And, and Claire, what you're saying right now is really making me think that. So it's like, how your relationship with your caregiver growing up, especially in infancy can impact your relationship with yourself and then how you're relating to others in varying ways too, in varying like capacities of relationship too. So um, whether it be a partner or a friend or um, when you're in a caregiving role as well, I'd imagine that's something that your attachment style is really going to have an effect on. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think um, like what you're actually talking about is another concept um, that was brought about by Bowlby called the internal working models. And, mm. um, you know, he theorized that, that that attachment, that quality of caregiving, that responsiveness to you is also how you identify your sense of self. Mm. And so that can be really impacted by whether or not you have an, uh, a caregiver who is attuned, who is responsive to you, who is... Um, imagining what your world's like and responding to you in ways that are emotionally supportive. Mm. And if that's not happening, um, that can have a really big impact on your, your sense of self. Sure. I love this conversation so much. And I'm, I have, I'm having so many thoughts and trying to like sift through like what is, what's relevant to bring up, uh, what, what is the time past as far as like, uh, we've moved beyond that topic, but my brain is still thinking about it kind of thing. Um, but I'm curious, Claire, maybe I find, um, in talking to people, there can sometimes be a relationship dynamic pattern where ambivalent attachment style, uh, and avoidant attachment style sort of find each other, um, (laughs) that that can be really triggering because like it's, you know, each person's self is sort of the other person's uh, nature, right? Like that's your, what is soothing to you is triggering for me and vice versa. Um, at least that's my experience of, of talking to people in that relationship dynamic. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, is that a common pairing? Um, what happens or, or maybe how do we relate to people in the different attachment styles or if they're different from our own, uh, any thoughts on how to be with someone um, who might be differing from you. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think this does happen quite often. Um, and I think sometimes that is a reflection too of how strange or how different it can be to be with somebody in like a secure attachment mm -hmm. um, because it is not what you're used to. Mm -hmm. And so having someone who is the opposite in the insecure um, dynamic of relationships, I think is, is a really common pairing. Mm -hmm. um, I think I just go back to awareness I think um, thinking about the ways in which both you and your partner or you and whoever it is that you are in this kind of dynamic with expresses and experiences like what they need, um, that can be a really good guiding light of, because one person always bringing up things in the relationship and the other person often has nothing to say. I feel like that's a very common dynamic of one person is, everything is great. Everything is perfect. Things are going well. I wouldn't change a thing. And the other person is constantly experiencing like there's there's a lot that I would change. There's a lot that feels like really unsettling to me. There's a lot that I'm unsure or um, anxious about, which I think is also kind of how that misnomer happened where ambivalent became anxious because it is anxiety expressed versus like avoidant, which is anxiety suppressed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think the more intentional that you can be around having conversations around um, both, like, I know that, um, like, for somebody who is ambivalent, like, I know that I'm, I'm, I share a lot of my anxiety, and the more that the other person can affirm or reassure or be um, a secure person in allowing that person to express that anxiety, the more that that anxiety will lessen over time. Mm -hmm. um, and then for the opposite, for the person who is avoidant, the more comfortable that they can feel expressing um, needs in a relationship, the more often they'll be able to do it. And across time, hopefully, again, they will be able to settle into um, a good pattern of both people feeling more stable, feeling more secure in that relationship and being able to express needs as they come up. And um, yeah. I think again, it's that air insecurity that like across time with consistent responses and, um, you know, ideally both people have like a, an awareness of their own, their own patterns that they're bringing into the relationship. I think that can help. Oh, sorry. <laughs> like a willingness to challenge those patterns if they're mm -hmm. uh, insecure types. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why I think exploring things like your attachment style and um, I don't know, like, you know, when there's personality tests, Enneagram and things like that, but particularly here. So even if like coming into listening to this, you weren't sure kind of um, where you lie in terms of attachment styles, being able to explore and understand that even if you're not able to see it within yourself without something like this, it helps to build insight, to be able to experience it from more of an objective point of view. And then also I think the, the just like understanding, oh, this is in infancy where this can start and through childhood, this is kind of like how this can present and recognizing like, oh, wow, I really resonate with that. Oh, I really resonate with that. Oh, wow, that was my experience. And to be able to, to deepen your awareness of self starting there, because I think 
sometimes when I'm working with people, it's like, yeah, awareness is great, but what if you don't have it? What if I don't know what to do here? But things like this can be so helpful to create almost some kind of concretization to, to start with. And that can help to kind of spark your own self-awareness from there. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's honestly like one of my very favorite things in therapy is when someone's coming in with like a pattern of behavior, especially in relationships and, you know, we're looking at it and we're looking at these things that are happening in the present. And then we kind of draw back and we get like a wider lens and we understand like more of the context of how that developed. And um, I think that's both helpful for that, like insight piece, but also for reducing, um, you know, shame or pain around that, that I think a lot of people carry when they've had, you know, maybe a series of unsuccessful relationships that they're feeling bad about, um, putting that into context and seeing how, um, kind of like normalizing it, but also seeing like where it comes from, I think is extremely helpful and, um, a big part of why I enjoy attachment theory so much. Yeah. Same. That's like my favorite part of therapy is when we're looking at like contextualizing and seeing like, oh, this, this shows up here and also here and here, here. And, and, and this is where it's coming from. And I love what you're describing Claire around the uh, reducing shame piece, because I think so many of us, and that's part of, I think, um, at least partially part of that side effect of that hyper-independent culture. It's like, we're responsible for ourselves. So, and also in childhood, um, we blame, we, we think it's us, right? Like we don't think it's our caregivers. We think it's us. Um, and so it creates this dynamic where even well into adulthood, we're looking at, uh, challenging dynamics and thinking this is something that's wrong with me or wrong about me. Mm-hmm. Um, that must be why this is happening and so being able to like you said bring that wider lens of not fault not blame but just context of like under these conditions of course it makes sense that x y or z would transpire right like in that that this would start to present and so it it helps with that like understanding piece and the insight piece but it also helps us have self-compassion and to bring a more healing lens to our own experience so that we can then bring that to our relational experiences as well. So I love that part of it too. Um, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> yeah, I think it, um, it is so important because I think I see this a lot with people who have the more ambivalent attachment style of having so much shame around feeling needy or oversensitive, which is you know a lot of times the words that they've been hearing while they are growing up or developing relationships as you're, you know, it's a lot, it's too much. Mm -hmm. Um, And then conversely, like when you have somebody who has the avoidant attachment style, a lot of shame around having needs and like Mm -hmm. just that sense of like, I shouldn't have needs. And so now I have shame that like, I'm looking for something in this relationship when, you know, in reality, we all, we all do. Mm And I loved what you talked about earlier, the basis of these being trust and, and I think safety might've said, but I think trust, it just so stood out to me because even that avoidant attachment style, you can hear how mistrust is there. It's like, I don't trust anybody else to take care of my needs. I don't like having needs might not be safe to have because either they haven't been met or whatever the experience has been. Um, and now I'm not relying on, on other people. And it sort of creates that, like, I'm going to 
tell myself that I don't. Um, and so I can see like clearly now uh, in like retrospect, having listened to everything that you shared with us today, like how both the avoidant and, and the ambivalent are anxious. But like you said, it's so much, uh, it's like explicitly expressed in the ambivalent. So it's like, oh, that anxiety around will my needs be met is very present and explicit. Um, and it almost seems to me like the avoidant, it's more like assumed that it won't be and and addressed accordingly kind of thing. Would that be accurate? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's spot on. Yeah, I really appreciated that clarification. Also, every time I say that clarification when Claire did something, I just <laughs> like, I love that. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I just thought that was so helpful, especially when you said in the two styles, anxiety is expressed and anxiety being suppressed. And I think it was just like, when you said that, it just felt like it was like, yes, yes. there, there was like, there was so much literal clarification there that was so helpful because I do think there's something about attachment theory that can be confusing mm -hmm. and there was a lot of I'm I talk about this a lot and I gained a lot of clarity from talking to you today around that and um and I think you did a really great job of like describing that and expressing what how how that um can manifest and then how it can show up in adulthood so understanding that and to me this is just like why it's so like reflection on your life is so important and understanding that past experiences they don't have to dictate the rest of your life but they can give you so much awareness of like how you're showing up in the world and like you were saying before it's like if it's by understanding attachment theories do send, tend to kind of um, sustain throughout life, but that it's not impossible to change them. And through work and therapy is certainly um, a really helpful tool there just in gaining the self-awareness, but also exploring ways that you can better support yourself and better support your needs or, and like this first step of that, just understanding yourself at a deeper level. Yeah, absolutely. You're, um, yeah, I think that's that's the the piece that I think I like holding on to as well and to reminding clients because I think it can be really hard sometimes to look and think about those early attachments and realize that um, maybe you weren't getting everything that you needed from a parent or from a caregiver and um, that can leave people feeling quite hopeless of like, how does this change? If this is something that I can't go back in time and change, like it was set, um, but it's not, it's... Um, it is possible like with reflection, with um, forming different attachments and, you know, putting in the work to understand yourself and understand relationships and um, building trust with others that you can, you can come, come to a place where you have that um, secure attachment. And I love that you talk about it in the language of like earned security, because it's like, okay, we didn't necessarily weren't born into that experience, but we can work to achieve it um, collectively with the important others in our lives. And I think that's such a valuable um, and hopeful, you know, like awareness to have. And it sort of makes me think that it comes down to the crux of, and this is just my lens because this is like what, how I think about things, but it, I feel like it must be then sort of coming down to both willingness from both people to do that work because it's hard work. Um, 
but also communication and perspective taking feels like it's a really big important part of navigating this dynamic particularly if you're you and your partner or you and the other person in this relationship are coming from different attachment styles then the ability and willingness to look at it from your partner's perspective to understand their feelings and how they're different from your feelings and be able to communicate with each other effectively and productively. I, I'm saying it like it would be really easy. It seems like it would actually be really challenging because we're coming from just our own lens, right? And like, so um, I'm wondering, Claire, if you have any thoughts, if you ever guide clients or um, on how to navigate that if they're trying to bridge um, maybe a challenging dynamic with a partner. I think, um, I think the most, I think there's a couple things that I feel like I want to like say about that. And one is that um, I think when our, when challenges are happening within the context of a relationship, um, individual therapy can be really helpful to understand your own perspective and maybe try some of that perspective taking and understand that. Um, but in order for that, like communication to truly improve in a way that is going to be most beneficial, I think couples therapy is the way to go because um, I can only work on things from one side if I'm only working with one half of the couple. Mm -hmm. um, and so I can see how that could be long-term frustrating if you're making all these changes or trying to work on communication and the other half of that partnership is not engaged in that process with you. Like, I think it's really important that both people are. Um, but the thing that I work, I think the most on, and I think this goes outside of romantic relationships. I think this goes with parental relationships and friendships and everything as well is being clear and consistent with expectations. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like, you know, there's been a lot about boundaries in our culture, thinking about like what has come up a lot, um, but maybe like a little, little bit of neglect when it comes to expectations. And I think of expectations as um, things that are explicit and voiced in a relationship that both people are agreeing on together. And so the more consistent you can be about setting expectations with your partner, um, the, hopefully the more transparent it becomes about what you need in a relationship and, um, hopefully what they're agreeing to, to as well. And, you know, those expectations go both ways. Um, but I think a lot of times looking at, like, I think, you know, talking about earlier, like some of those subtle ways that we might try to get our expectations met without, you know, being vulnerable and outright saying them. Um, I think a lot of the work that I do with people is like, how do you be vulnerable and how do you state very explicitly like what it is that you need or how you were feeling in a certain situation or how something that they did or didn't do made you feel. Um, I think a lot of that vulnerability piece and learning to build trust in the other that they're a safe space and they're a person that you can place that trust in and um, have that space is uh, a lot of the work that I do with people. So I have a final question based on what you just said, and I'm going to put you on the spot a tiny bit, um, but it's something that I talk about a lot too. And I think it's so important the like the differentiation a little bit more explicitly, because I think you already started touching on this, but between boundaries and expectations, because you're totally right. There is like so much about boundaries, which is great because they're super important. And I think there are inherent overlaps between them and there's an important distinction to be made between those two as well. I talk a lot about the difference between boundaries and expectations a lot. Yeah. I think um, the way that I describe it is more or less like if you're in a good, healthy relationship, 
you don't necessarily need boundaries. You can have expectations mm. and expectations are things that you explicitly say, or that can be expressed to a partner and they are respected and they, um, they can be mutual. Um, and it's agreed upon. And whereas boundaries are a lot of times what happens when expectations are not met. Mm-hmm. So to give an example, if you're in a relationship and you guys tend to fight, there's arguing, there's yelling, maybe you set an expectation of like, you know, conflict is inevitable, but I don't appreciate yelling. Like when we fight, I, I don't, I don't think it's healthy for us to yell the other person. Yeah, you're right. Like we're going to try not to yell. Let's, let's both try to do that. Um, obviously like people are going to slip up, but it's, I'm sorry. I yelled. like, you know, we made an agreement. That is the expectation. I understand how that makes you feel that sort of thing. Um, when boundaries come in is when that person is continually doing that thing and not trying to meet that expectation at all. Um, and so then your boundary becomes, if you yell, I'm going to end this argument by walking away. And so it's not something that you can rely on the other person to do with you. It's just something that you can do for yourself. Um, but I think like in healthy relationships, that communication, those expectations, those things that are set clearly and um, both people can agree to and are trying to respect um, that that is kind of like where I see the difference in those things. It's about that trust building and it's about that like this can be an emotionally safe space for me. Whereas I think boundaries are what happens when it's not an emotionally safe space. It's almost like the expectation is between you and the other person that you're in the relationship with. And the boundary is between you and you and how you are willing to, it's like the expectations informing the boundary. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a really succinct way of looking at it. I have loved this conversation so very much. Like, it's just so good. It's so, so good. Um, I can't wait for everybody to hear it. And I'm wondering, Claire, and it's okay if no, but I just want to give you the space, the opportunity. Is there anything on your heart that you like really hoped that you would share today or you were thinking you had in mind that, that we didn't cover? Or do you feel like we went through everything that you were thinking of? You know, I think, I think I, um, I think we did cover quite a bit of the things that I wanted to talk about in terms of attachment. I think it like, I have a lot of thoughts about how this applies to parenting and especially since that's um, a lot of the people that I'm working with. And um, I think this is a good introduction to attachment and things, looking at relationships. And I guess I would also emphasize that like currently attachment is coming up in romantic relationships quite a bit. Um, but like I said, it, you know, attachment is involved in every relationship. And so I'm thinking about these through friendships and, you know, workplace situations can sometimes be helpful and trying to understand and perspective taken behavior around, um, how other people might be responding to you. Like, this is a good way to, um, to, to maybe garner a little bit more of that perspective by thinking about attachment. Sounds like we'll just have to have you back to talk about parenting then. Yes. (laughs) That would be great. (laughs) Yes. I think that sounds like a plan. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Claire and CME for a wonderful conversation as always. And we'll talk to everyone in our next episode.
That sounds great. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. Yeah. Bye.